is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We are so glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're a guest. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. The passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, as always, we're glad you're here, and I'd love for you to be listening for the following three things in the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about Alexander the Great. Be listening for a story about Alexander the Great. Be listening for a definition of humility, and be listening for a story about angels. Alexander the Great, humility, and angels. Over the next few months, we're spending time looking at the book of Philippians on Sunday morning, and it's a timely book for us because it's a book that is focused on joy in the midst of difficult and unsettling circumstances. Paul actually mentions joy in some form or fashion 16 times over the course of this short four-chapter book. And it's surprising that Paul talks so much about joy given the circumstances that he's in. Remember, he's writing from a Roman prison. He's scheduled to come before the Roman authorities on charges of disturbing the peace back in Jerusalem. He's unsure of whether or not he'll ever be released to return to his work of church planting. It's a precarious time for Paul, one characterized by struggle and disappointment. And it's also a precarious time for the young church as increasing and systematic persecution is beginning to spread across the Roman Empire. Yet despite all these circumstances, we see that Paul writes a letter that's dominated by joy. Now, how could this be possible? It doesn't make sense to us because you and I are prone to think that joy is tied directly to our circumstances. It's tied directly to our well-being. It's tied to how our future is shaping up. It's tied to how many good things we have in life. But Paul wants to show us in this short letter that joy isn't located in any of those things. Instead, Paul works hard to show us that joy is found in Christ alone. It's found in our relationship with Him and in His deep love towards us. And if joy is found in Jesus, then it makes sense that we will experience joy as we engage areas of our life where Christ is most often found. Jesus isn't normally found in accumulation or success or money or victorious living. Instead, you more often experience deeper relationship with Jesus and things like suffering and community and generosity and humility. That's where joy is experienced because those are the places where Jesus can be found. And this morning, we get the chance to turn our attention to one of the most majestic and beautiful passages in all of Scripture. If you put together a top 10 passage list of the Bible, this would have to be in it. It's a passage that highlights for us that joy isn't found in being on top. It's not found in exerting our rights and our privileges. It's not found in getting our way all the time. It's not found in being admired and respected by others. Instead, we'll hopefully see this morning that joy is found in a most unlikely place. It's found in humility. See what I mean? You follow along. As I read from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. I wonder if you've ever seen the old Holiday Inn Express commercials the ones where a person is engaged in an activity that he or she knows absolutely nothing about, but they pretend to know exactly what they're doing. They're hilarious. Here's here's how one of them plays out. A man is in the control room of a nuclear reactor, and it's on the verge of melting down. Sirens are sounding all around him, and people in the control room, they're panicking, and the camera pans to a man who's eating a donut and sipping a cup of coffee. And he begins to give orders to the engineers. He says, you're going to have to provide more cooling in the containment chamber, okay? Close the fluid channels, activate the hydrogen recombiners, do it. Well, they all wait for a few seconds. And then they explode in celebration when they realize that crisis has been diverted. And one of the engineers looks at the man with the donut and asks, are you new to the team? And the man who saved the day responds, actually, I'm with the tour group. And the camera pans over to a group of worried tourists. But I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You know these commercials. Pretty funny. They're also pretty good commentary on where we are as a society, I think. These commercials get us thinking about the way that you are expected to know everything. To be an expert on all issues how you're encouraged to have strong opinions on every topic, even things you don't know that much about. And not only are you expected to have strong opinions, if someone doesn't agree with your opinion or your viewpoint on things, then it's okay to demonize that person or that group of people. I'd be willing to bet that assessment sounds familiar in many ways. And it makes sense if that's our posture towards those we don't agree with, that relational harmony and unity would be difficult to experience. It's hard to push back on the idea that we experience lots of disunity and mistrust and relational tension and quarreling on a regular basis. In fact, you could say it's become the water in which we swim. And I wonder how much better we're doing as the church. I'm afraid we're not doing a whole lot better as the community that claims to follow Jesus, that claims to submit to a different king with an entirely different set of kingdom values, a community that seeks to exhibit service and love and humility, gentleness and kindness. The church in Philippi wasn't doing much better. 
And they didn't even have social media or the internet or the 24-hour news cycle. While they were generous and they were loving towards Paul, you also get the sense that they were in danger of allowing strife and division and disunity to grow in their midst. Back in chapter 1, Paul mentions some of those that preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Later in chapter 4, Paul addresses two people by name, entreating them to agree in the Lord, meaning that they had a sharp enough disagreement to warrant Paul's attention in this short letter. We can resonate with the Philippian church in many ways, I think. In our passage, Paul's encouraging the Philippians to be of one mind, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he says, to look out for the interests of others. And there's obviously a need that Paul is addressing in this community. The Philippians, like us, seem to have been prone towards selfishness and disunity. And we can be fairly certain that these characteristics are the fruit of pride in the Philippians' hearts. We're all prone to selfishness. We're all prone to protect our own interests first, to promote ourselves above others, to protect ourselves even if it means we leave others vulnerable. And this encouragement to put others' interests ahead of our own is hard because it goes against all of our natural instincts. For instance, you know who I'm thinking about when I wake up in the morning? It's normally me. You know whose interests I'm normally concerned about throughout the day? I wish I didn't have to say it, but it's more often than not my own interests. What Paul's addressing in the first four verses of our passage can be boiled down to pride. And pride is poisonous to relationship. It can be toxic to community. Thomas Aquinas once said that inordinate self-love is the cause of every sin. T.S. Eliot once said, Most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. And G.K. Chesterton once said, If I could only preach one sermon, it would be a sermon about pride. Pride is so dangerous because sin is rooted in and fueled by pride. Like the Bible says, pride comes before the fall. It's the soil in which sin grows. It's the desire to look out for ourselves, to promote ourselves, to be more important and valuable than others, to get ahead, and pride never unifies. It always isolates, it always tears relationships apart. Whether it's a relationship with God or other people, pride is a relational killer. And this is the case because at its core, pride is always competitive. It's always competitive. Rivalry and comparison always come with pride. Comparison is at the heart of pride. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it in his great chapter on pride from Mere Christianity. He says, pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Pride is always relative to other people. It's why we get insecure and lose the joy that we have when we encounter someone more successful or more beautiful than us. 
It's because we found joy in having more of those things than another person. Our joy was rooted in something that's shaky at best. And that kind of prideful comparison leads to disunity in community. It leads to deep insecurity. David Letterman, when he was doing The Late Show, he gives a perfect example of what pride does to a person and to a community. Letterman, one night on his show, said this, Every night I feel like I have to prove my self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. You want to be the absolute best, the wittiest, the smartest, the most charming. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come up short of that, I'm not happy. How things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Now, this is how most of us live day in and day out, I think. Letterman just knows himself a bit better than most of us know ourselves. We walk around comparing ourselves all the time. We compare everything. Think about it. We compare the schools that we get into. We compare our resumes. We compare our social media feeds. We compare our bodies. We compare our incomes. We compare our homes. We compare the vacations we take. We compare our marriages. We compare our kids. We even compare our spirituality. This is what Paul is getting at when he writes to the Philippians that there is something in the human heart that causes us to constantly compare ourselves to others in order to feel better about ourselves, to feel like we're somebody, to make a name for ourselves. That's how pride works. And pride robs you of joy. Pride's toxic to the unity that Christ wants in his body. Pride keeps us focused on our own interests, on our own needs, never on the needs or interests of others. Pride keeps us from experiencing the unity of mind and mission that Paul wants us to experience. Pride is the least Christ-like thing we can exhibit in our lives. Paul wants the Philippians to experience deep joy in community. He wants them to be of one mind. It comes out in those first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. He wants them to be unified in their mission of reaching their neighbors with the gospel message. In fact, they needed unity to withstand the trials and the difficulties that were coming their way. And in order for unity to flourish, given all the opinions and preferences that we bring to the table, We all have opinions and preferences on any number of different things. There's a key ingredient that needs to be in place. And that key ingredient, shouldn't be a surprise, is humility. The unity that Paul wants the Philippians to experience has to be based on humility. According to Paul, the solution to disunity is humility. And this can be hard because everyone wants unity, I don't think there's a person in the room this morning that wouldn't say, I'd love to be unified as a church and with other people, but who in the world wants to humble themselves in order to make it possible? You have got to understand that Paul's call toward humility would have made absolutely no sense to the Philippians apart from Jesus. In some ways, humility is a prized characteristic in our culture, If you read the leadership books, humility is even identified as the secret to successful leadership in 21st century American culture. We tend to gravitate toward humility when we see it in our lives today, but humility 
Get this, it was not a characteristic that was valued in first century Greek and Roman culture. In that culture, humility was despised. It was a huge weakness. In the first century, the picture of success was Alexander the Great. He was admired by everyone. By the time Alexander died at the age of 33, he had conquered the entire known world. And by the time of his death, he was a godlike figure in the eyes of the world, many even considering him divine. Alexander the Great was the picture of leadership and success, conquering the world, looking out for himself above all others. And historians will tell you that you would be hard-pressed to find a single instance where humility is commended by any pagan author in the first century. Never comes up as something that folks should want and desire. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, humility was not a prized trait like it often is today. And it causes us to stop for a minute and ask, how in the world did humility go from a despised characteristic in the first century to something that we prize in our culture? Well, there's a university in Australia, Macquarie University, and they did a research project on this, asking how did humility go from despised to being prized and admired in our day? And this is what they concluded. They said the modern Western fondness for humility almost certainly derives from the peculiar impact of the Judeo-Christian worldview. This is not a religious conclusion for we're a public university. It's purely a historical finding. Humility was unheard of until a man named Jesus of Nazareth showed up on the scene and started saying things like, the last will be first. The greatest among you is going to be the servant of all. The richest are going to be those who give away their resources. Jesus brought an entirely new perspective to this world on humility. And Paul is inviting the Philippians to make the mind of Christ, the humility of Christ, their own. The term Christian literally means little Christ. And it was a derogatory term in the first century, little Christ, Christian. And Paul's encouraging the Philippians to live into their true identity as little Christs, to be like Jesus in expressing humility so that they might experience unity of mind and vision. And then Paul makes a transition in verses 5 through 11. After calling the Philippians to unity and humility, he draws their attention to Jesus. He paints for them a picture of what humility looks like. If pride has us looking at ourselves, humility has us looking at Jesus. And it's widely believed that verses 6 through 11 was a hymn or an ancient confession of faith that was known to the early church. I mean, these verses, they're poetic, they're beautiful in their description of who Jesus is. Very easy to memorize. In these verses, we see Jesus as the ultimate example of humility. And Paul is inviting us to emulate Christ, to have a humble mentality or mind, which Paul says is already ours in Christ Jesus. Since we're in Christ, we're called to be like him to put on our new identity and live into it. In other words, to become who we truly are. In these verses, we see that Jesus is willing to go down. He's willing to go down, down in order to put others' interests ahead of his own. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus was in the very form of God. Paul is affirming here that Jesus is God himself, the same in power and glory and majesty, the same in substance. 
All the attributes and splendor of God is what Jesus had from all eternity past and still has. But verse six says that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And another way to translate that would be Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to. He wasn't grasping at the glory and the honor and the privileges. Jesus left the advantages behind. It's important to highlight that Jesus didn't give up his divinity. Instead, he took on the limits of humanity, taking the form of a slave, leaving behind his majesty and his splendor. He gave them up and he took the form of a servant. He took upon himself the limitations of humanity. Think about it. He submitted himself to walk this fallen world, experiencing its temptations and its heartaches. He committed to growing up as a son and a brother and a friend, one whose body grew weary. Jesus limited himself to age-appropriate growth, to being in one place at one time, to having to grow in knowledge and wisdom and stature. Paul is saying that Jesus emptied himself of the privileges and honor that he had always enjoyed. He took the form of a servant and dwelt among us. Jesus handicapped himself. It was a humiliation. And as if becoming a human servant wasn't low enough, Paul reminds us that he humbled himself further by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a despised Roman execution tool that we now know and wear around our necks as a cross. What a picture of humility. A picture of counting others more significant than yourself. A picture of looking out for others' interests. And it's interesting to think about all of this activity from the perspective of the angels in heaven. I know I've brought this up before, but the beings who for ages had worshiped and glorified and honored Jesus, seeing him take on a body and becoming a servant, what were the angels thinking? What must they have been, what must have been going through their minds? Well, Donald McLeod, who's a theology professor at the Free Church College in Edinburgh, writes about this in his book, A Faith to Live By, when he asks this. What did the angels think of it all? One day they blinked in astonishment as they saw their great creator in a manger in Bethlehem. They must have found the spectacle incomprehensible. Then as the days and years moved on, they saw a drama unfold which must have overloaded every circuit in their computers. One day, word came that their Lord was in Gethsemane and one of them had been sent to strengthen him. Hours afterwards, there came even more astonishing news. He was bleeding on the cross of Calvary. That surely was the bottom, the very worst. But no, the next thing was the Father had forsaken him, the God whose whole impulse it was to wash away the tears from the eyes of his people, not washing away the tears of his own son. That's how it was from beginning to end of his earthly life, down. The tremendous step from throne to stable, and then the incredible journey from the stable to the cross, and beyond it, the journey on the cross itself from the sacrifice to the abandonment. The angels must have been saying, will this never, never end? How low is he going to go? How low does he have to go? It was the humility of Jesus that made salvation possible. 
the fact that he was willing to go so low, placing our needs and interests ahead of his own so that we might be rescued from the bondage and the penalty of sin. In this gospel, this good news, it destroys pride and any sense of superiority that we might have. It brings deep unity and fellowship among those who follow Jesus because the gospel doesn't allow you to look down on anyone. It stands as a reminder that no one is too far gone. No one is beyond the reach of God's love. The gospel reminds you on one hand that you are so sinful. You are so sinful. I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me. Yet on the other hand, the gospel also says that I am so loved, that you are so loved, that Jesus was glad to die for you. Jesus was glad to put aside his power and privilege and honor in order to rescue you. And Paul calls us to have the same mind of humility, which he says is ours in Christ Jesus. But we'll never grow in humility if we only look to Jesus as an example to follow. Just try it for a day. I mean, just following Jesus as as an example won't bring much joy to your life. It won't liberate you. Instead, you'll probably find that it crushes you because you can't live up to the standard that you've set, that he's set. We can't manufacture humility in our own strength. We'll only grow in humility and joy as we see Jesus, not just as our example, but primarily as our savior, our humble servant who came to serve, not generally, but very specifically, who came specifically to serve us, to serve you. Jesus is really the fulfillment of what Paul wants to see from the Philippians. Jesus is the one who places others' interests ahead of his own, even at such great expense to himself. The selflessness and humility of God is demonstrated for us in Christ. He's not just our example, he's our savior. And on the cross, he died for your pride. He died for your selfish ambition and your conceit. His humility accomplished our salvation. Humility brought life to the entire world. Think about that. Because of Jesus, you and I can be secure. We can be approved. We can have an identity that can never be taken from us. And that allows us to press into humility. It allows us to stop defending ourselves, to hold our privileges with very loose hands as we take hold of the mind of Christ that's already ours. Jesus has set us free, and we are hidden in him. And believing that more deeply will make us a group that is unified and loving, a group that finds deep joy in humility. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not just our example, you are that, but you are much more than that. You are our Savior, the one that we need, the one who went to the cross, putting our interests and our needs ahead of your own, dying for our pride and our conceit and our selfish ambition. We thank you that the gospel reminds us that we were so sinful that we needed you to die for us, but you loved us so much that you were happy to do so. And we pray that as we come to believe that more deeply, that it would lead us further into humility further into love and service towards one another and towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.